1 Samuel chapter 13. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to the Besor ravine, where some stayed behind, for 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine. But David and 400 men continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink, food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, to whom do you belong and where do you come from? He said, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Kerathites in the territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I will take you down to them. He led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they'd taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode up on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. Then David came to the 200 men who'd been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Besor ravine. They came out to meet David and the people with him. As David and his men approached, he greeted them. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, because they didn't go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. David replied, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He's protected us and handed over to us the forces that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All shall share alike. David made this a statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. When David arrived in Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, 
Here is a present for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. He sent it to those who were in Bethel, Ramoth, Negev, and Japhir, to those in Arur, Sifmoth, Eshtemoa, and Rakam, to those in the towns of the Jeromelites and the Kenites, to those in Horma, Bor Ashan, Athach, and Hebron, and to those in all the other places where David and his men had roamed. Thanks very much, Julie. There's some uh, interesting names to get you at the end there. Right, so good morning. Let me pray for us as we start and put my glasses on so I can see what I'm doing. Some words from Jesus. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are weary and burdened, so we come to you, friends and claim this promise. What a wonderful promise, Lord Jesus. So we, we pray that you would give us rest. We pray that you would show us of uh, your character, your goodness, as we look at your word together now. Please, would you speak to us? Please, would you give us rest for our souls? Amen. Amen. Great. Well, do keep um, that passage um, that Julie read to you uh, open in, in front of you. Uh, 1 Samuel 30, we're nearing the end, penultimate one in our studies in, in 1 Samuel. Uh, so I'm going to start off with a quote. At the heart of Saul's sin is that he wants a domesticated God, a God like the genie in Aladdin's lamp. One who will do wonderful things for him as long as he holds the lamp. That's uh, how Don Carson, uh, writing on 1 Samuel, describes King Saul. And I think it's quite insightful of him. Saul, the heart of his sin, the heart of his problem is that he wants a domesticated God, like a genie in a lamp. And at this stage in 1 Samuel, he somehow feels that David now has got the lamp. And he wishes he could get the power back. Uh, what Saul just does not see is that the real God is, is to be worshipped, is to be reverenced, is to be obeyed, feared and loved unconditionally. He's not a genie or a vending machine um, just there for our, for our beck and call. When we see Saul in the latter half of 1 Samuel, we see a man who thinks of himself as the centre of the universe. And for him, what, whatever gods exist are there to, to serve him. If the covenant God of Israel does not help him as he wishes, then Saul is prepared to, to find other gods instead. Because for Saul, keeping his kingdom, keeping his grip on power is of what is uh, of, of most utmost importance to him. That's what trumps 
absolutely everything else. It, it's what drives him to such extraordinary lengths, flinging spears about left, right and centre, going on a manhunt with 3,000 men to, in the wilderness looking for David, as, as we've seen. That's what drives him in chapter 28, in his fear and despair at the threat of the Philistines to seek out a medium, the witch of Endor, because he's not getting what he wants from God. He's desperate to know the future. He's desperate to cling on to power. And the genie's just not answering him anymore. Well, the contrast between Saul and David just couldn't be more stark. And we've seen again and again that the writer of 1 Samuel setting out the narrative for us to compare and contrast the different responses going on. And at a fundamental level, what sets these two apart, Saul and David, is this. It's how they see God. How they see God. Their theology of God, their understanding of who God is and what he's like, is what profoundly shapes these two men. For Saul, as we've seen already, he wants a domesticated God, a genie in the lamp. Saul He's the center of the universe. Any God needs to do his bidding, not the other way around. But David is a man after God's own heart. He knows that the real God, the Lord, is God. He is to be worshipped, reverenced, obeyed, feared, and loved unconditionally. He is to be the one who is front and center in our lives, not us. Now, I wonder of those two approaches to God, I wonder which describes yours this morning. Well, as we go through this chapter, we're going to look at how David's theology of God profoundly impacts and shapes his responses in, in the desperation, in the, in the difficult times and in the good times. And there's lots we can learn from, from his example. But the first thing we need to see in our passage today is that, is that we find David at the start of this chapter utterly overwhelmed. Actually, from chapter 18 onwards, it's been suffering and trouble for David on almost every page. It's just been a pounding for him in, in all of those uh, uh, chapters that, that we've been looking at. He's been chosen by God to be the next king. The chosen servant of God, anointed by Samuel. And yet he's had to endure such suffering and opposition and threat at, at every turn. Yeah, it'll be all right, I guess. So verses one and two, we get to, to learn of what's happened before David and his men do. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. So we get to the sort of dramatic tension of knowing what's happened before the characters in the story do. And verse three, when David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. And so they wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. 
It's incredibly vivid language, isn't it? Wept aloud until no strength left to weep. And there's just compound despair for David too, as, as the men talk of stoning him in their grief and distress, looking for someone to blame. They, they direct that towards David. We followed you, David, and, and look what's happened. There's distress, there's anger, there's weeping, there's bitterness. Just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, bam. Following the, the relief in the previous chapter of being spared by God's sovereignty and goodness, and being, being spared and delivered from that impossible situation that they found themselves in chapter 9 of either having to, to fight against Israel, which would be unthinkable, or turn against the Philistines from within their ranks, which would have been suicide. The Lord graciously delivered them from that. Imagine the relief and the joy at the thought of being able to head home back to their family at Ziklag. Like that scene in, in Gladiator, I don't know if you've seen Gladiator, Maximus, he's, he's done fighting the, the wars, the Goths or the Gauls, whoever it is that he's fighting, and he's heading back home to his farm in Spain. And he gets there to see it destroyed and burnt and loved ones gone. So what's David's response in his despair and his grief that is utterly overwhelming? What does David do? Where does he turn? Verse 6. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and his daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. David found strength in the Lord his God. At his weakest point, when his strength had gone, he found strength in the Lord his God. Now Saul's view is just not big enough to cope with this kind of distress. Saul's view of God. Just, he couldn't cope with it. In his despair, he abandons God and heads off to see the witch instead. But David turns towards God, not away from his God. And it's a fascinating phrase, isn't it? Intriguing. David found strength in the Lord his God. What's going on here? What, what's he doing? Well, there's a couple of clues for us here. Firstly, notice in verse 6, David found strength in the Lord, his God. The Lord, his God. It begins for David with a personal God, a personal God. One commentator I was reading put it like this. There, there was always danger of God's people holding to the official covenant faith without having a vital personal faith. It could be all too easy for God's people to speak of the shepherd of Israel, Psalm 80, verse 1, but not to be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23, as David famously said. And that's something that, that I've seen again and again in, in, in all kinds of churches um, that I've been involved with, that, that there's a difference between merely a, a cultural faith 
and a personal faith. Do you see the difference between I go to, to church because my family do and because I always have done it, but I, but I keep God at, at, at arm's length. That's a cultural belief, faith. It, it's not a personal faith. But for David here, the Lord is his God. He has a personal relationship with, with the Lord. And that's so vital to hold on to in the midst of suffering and grief and distress. When we're all overwhelmed, to know that the Lord is my shepherd is massive, isn't it? That he's not a God who is cold and far off and distant, who's just sort of maybe wound this world up like a clock and just left it on a shelf. He's here. He's intimately involved. He's rolling up his sleeves. He's, he's here with you. He knows you. He loves you. Right there at, at your weakest point, when your strength has gone, that is where he meets you. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And we get a further clue of what that might have meant for David. As these words echo back to Jonathan's visit to David in the wilderness whilst he was on the run. Back in chapter 23, at verse 15, while David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. What does, what does Jonathan do? He reminds him of, of God's word. He reminds him of God's promises. He reminds him of who God is. That the Lord, the almighty covenant-making, covenant-keeping God is utterly faithful. He keeps his promises. He is utterly dependable and trustworthy. I'm sure that's what's going on here in verse 6. As David strengthens himself in the Lord, his God. It's an incredible response, isn't it? When you... When you take into account all that's happened and all that's going on, it's a huge contrast to Saul, as we've seen. And it's actually a huge contrast to his own response. Just a couple of chapters earlier, in chapter 27, verse 1, David said to his heart, one of these days I'm going to be destroyed by Saul. The best thing I can do is escape. David said to his heart, and we, we thought about that a few weeks ago, the difference between listening too much to our heart instead of speaking the truth to our heart, like he does here in verse 6. Well, I wonder what, what do we need to learn from, from David's example here? David found strength. In the Lord his God. And in the story, we move on from the God who strengthens to seeing the God who is in control. 
the God who is in control. David's first thought after being strengthened is, is to seek out the Lord, is to inquire of the Lord what he should do next. Again, in contrast with what he didn't do in chapter 27, there's no mention him of, of God in that whole chapter. But right here, he gets Abiathar the priest, who's the son of poor old Elimelech. Um, who, uh, Abiathar the priest is the sole survivor of, soul, of Saul's slaughter of the priests of Nob. And, and one of the outcomes of that slaughter was, was Saul depriving himself of the priestly means of seeking out God's guidance, the ephod. So David seeks out the Lord's will in this situation. What should he do? And he receives the clear guidance, and, and so off they go. 200 of his men are, are too exhausted to go, so, that, so they stay behind. So David and the other 399 head off without them. And I want to press pause here briefly. I don't know if you were wondering, as we read through the, uh, the passage just now, um, what they're setting up, but how do they know where to look? How do they know where to go? Isn't it a bit of a sort of needle in a haystack? How can they, what's going to happen? Well, by divine providence. As we've seen again and again throughout this, this whole book, divine, it's full of divine providence. In God's sovereign goodness and kindness, they happen to come across this Egyptian slave who'd been left for dead by the Amalekite raiding party. I mean, what are the chances of that? Now, the Amalekites had um, previous with God's people. When God's people were coming up out of Egypt, the Amalekites attacked and picked off the stragglers, the weak and the vulnerable. And actually, as you kind of read through the Old Testament, that's what the Amalekites were were infamous for doing praying on the weak and the vulnerable picking off the, the stragglers and god had singled out the amalekites for judgment because of that saul had tried and failed to conquer them already in chapter 15 but David succeeds here in chapter 30, thanks to the information he got from the slave, thanks to his kindness to the slave that, that they just happened to, to come across. The 400 men of David win this great victory. Did you notice in verse 17, there's 400 young men escape on their camels in the Amalekites. They're just seen as, as a small remnant of the entire force that was there that were put to the sword by David and his men. It is a famous victory. And it's complete, isn't it? Notice how the narrator is, is at pains to, to spell out how they recovered everything. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives, verse 18. Verse 19, nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. So, bumping into that puny, half-dead Egyptian was such a pivotal moment. 
wasn't it? And yet there's no sort of providence klaxon going off. Well, 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 this is a, this is God's providence. There's nothing like that going on. No neon letters spelling it out. This is a sovereign grace of God moment here. Just a small happenstance. And yet how often little providences can make such big differences. It's interesting for us to, to look at our lives, our situations. Are we, are we seeing with the eyes of faith what God is doing? Are we seeing his providence and, and his sovereign care? Perhaps we do need neon providential klaxons. Maybe the good book company could come up with something. <laughs> So we see the God who strengthens, the God who's in control. And I want to finish up looking at the king who gives, the king who gives. We started off thinking about how David's theology of God shaped his, his responses and his actions. We've seen that how, how that happened in the bad times, in the distress. But in this chapter, we see how that, um, how his theology of God uh, shapes him in the good times too. We see a radical generosity here. When some of his, his men think those who didn't fight shouldn't get a spare of the a, a share of the spoils, David replies in verse 23: No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to battle. All will share alike. It's striking, isn't it? David here is a king who gives. He's generous. And it reminds us of, of uh, way back in chapter 8, Samuel's warning to the people when they said, we want to be like the nations around, we want a king. Samuel said to them, well, be careful what you wish for, essentially. In an impassioned speech back in chapter, chapter 8, Samuel says, the king will take your sons for soldiers, he'll take your daughters for cooks, he'll take your fields, he'll take your crops, he'll take your animals, he will take, take, take. But the picture here of David is radically different to that, isn't it? And it's his, his theology that shapes his decisions and his actions here. He knows it's, it's the Lord that gave them the victory. It's the Lord who protected them. It's the Lord who delivered the enemy into their hands. It's the Lord who gave them the, the plunder in the first place. David's men's philosophy is not grace, but works. You get what you earn. David's philosophy is grace isn't it it's focused on what the lord has done it's focused on what the lord has given them and that's what's shaped his decisions and his actions here 
So I wonder how does our thinking about God, our understanding of who he is and what he's done for us, the grace that we have received in Christ, how does that work its way out in in our lives, in, in everyday situations? How does that impact the way we parent our children? How does that impact the way we lead our team at work? How does that impact the way we we are with with, uh, our our friends or our family? Are our relationships characterised by works or by grace? Are we radically generous with what the Lord has given us? Because we know it's not really ours in the first place. Do we give and give and give or take and take and take? Well, the only way that we can follow David's example is by coming to the ultimate king that generous King David points us forward to, King Jesus. We're coming to him, the the king who gives and gives and gives, the king who gave himself for you, the king who won the decisive victory, not over a bunch of raiding Amalekites, but over sin and death, our, our greatest foes. He smashed them, as we've been seeing with the kids earlier, earlier this morning. He smashed sin and death. He crushed them. And he shares the spoils with you and me who, who weren't even involved in the fight, who don't deserve to be given anything. Jesus Our great servant king gives forgiveness, cleansing, new life, hope of eternal life. What great promises we have to to cling to. What good news to preach to our heart that we might be strengthened in the Lord and God. Well, as we... As we finish up, I want to read some well-known words of David from the Psalms, which I'm sure are an example of David strengthening himself in the, in the Lord. Let me say Psalm 103. Let me read these as, as we close. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. 
as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Amen. Amen.